Hi everyone, Terry Welbrock here, The Healing Place Podcast. What a phenomenal episode we have coming up today. Such a great conversation. Um, I was very enthusiastic, <laughs> as you'll hear, um, and just resonating with so much of what uh, Dr. Aaron uh, is sharing with us today. Um, exciting news in that we've added another country to the Healing Place podcast, so we're now at a, downloaded in 119 countries this month so far. Um, in September of 2022, we've had, uh, I think this is the, like the second or third most downloaded episodes um, for the month so far this year. So I know January was like a killer awesome month um for whatever reason and uh yeah we're this one's creeping up close to that which is amazing and awesome and very very exciting uh so i just wanted to thank you again for listening for sharing it with others inviting folks to uh tune in i'm about i think oh gosh like 17 subscribers to go to hit my 1,000 subscribers on YouTube. So if you haven't subscribed to my YouTube channel yet, please go to Terry Welbrock on YouTube and uh, subscribe and help me hit that 1,000 goal. I'm super excited by that. And I've joined TikTok, and it's so much fun, and I've put out seven videos so far, and one of them has like 2,000 views, which is so super exciting. It's my mom dancing, her 86-year-old little cute self dancing. Um so yeah, go find me, Terry Welbrook, on TikTok as well, and uh, follow me there. I'm going to be put out, putting out all kinds of fun little seven-second videos, so super quick, um, and then some, maybe up to, I think they're like 15 seconds, 30 seconds, one minute, but not super long. Uh, just advice and guidance and things I've learned through the show and uh, all kinds of fun stuff, so awesome. All right, now for the show. Welcome, everybody, to the Healing Place Podcast. I'm your host, Terry Welbrock, and so very excited to have with me today, Dr. Erin McKee. She is a psychologist and trauma therapist, and I'm just thrilled to talk to her. We're going to talk about some mindfulness, which I know we've talked about here on the show before, but we're going to go some, down some different roads, and, um, and we're going to bring in COVID and the impact of that and so much more. So welcome, Dr. Erin. Thank you, Terry. So great to be here. What an Absolutely. honor. Yes. Well, we have we have a mutual friend that connected us. And I love when that happens. I'm finding that more and more that people are reaching out and saying, oh, my gosh, I know this amazing person that needs to be on the show. And I'm always so welcoming to amazing healers and people who are shining that light of hope into the world. So, yeah, feel blessed to have yeah. you here. Oh, thank you. Yes. Same. So, Likewise. Thanks. Thank you. Talk to us. Um, well, I guess let's start because I was so intrigued when I, when during our conversations back and forth in email about uh, trauma sensitivity. Can, can you define that for us? Sure. So the idea is trauma sensitive mindfulness, right? And being able to do therapy or one's own mindfulness practice with trauma sensitivity. And so we often talk about trauma-informed practice, which is a beautiful thing. And the awareness that psychology is, is dawning on psychology is that most of us are traumatized in one way or another. So all clients are trauma patients. 
And if we ignore trauma, we will misdiagnose and we'll miss things, right? So trauma-sensitive mindfulness understands that all that it has to be trauma-informed when you're working with people, either as a mindfulness meditation teacher or as a psychotherapist, especially one who focuses on trauma. And if you're teaching mindfulness, which is a wonderful practice and has become very popular, and so I'll talk a little bit more about my idea of what that is, you need to be aware of trauma. And if you aren't careful, you can actually make people more traumatized accidentally. You can re-traumatize people because they're not regulated enough to be able to be mindful because mindfulness is actually like a form of exposure therapy because you're sitting or you're standing or you're walking and you're seeing what's there as non-judgmentally, as lovingly, but as frankly as possible. You're not trying to fix, you're not trying to solve or change. And if you're traumatized, which is most of us, especially after this prolonged pandemic and how in a way, mindfulness practice is the type of exposure therapy. And if you're not ready to expose yourself to your traumatic memories, which won't always come up, but often do, then it can be a very dysregulating and actually re-traumatizing experience accidentally. Yes, yeah. Um, and something that you said just a second ago, uh, I worked in a in a mental health agency with kids in the school systems, and so I was I was on the mental health side of of this agency in Cincinnati. And um, one of the things that was just starting to bubble to the surface was uh, ACEs and adverse childhood experiences, and we were just again starting to be an understanding of that. Even though that research had happened in the eighties, it was just starting to come up, and. Some of the therapists I work with and those working in that mental health field were starting to have conversations about these um, diagnoses of like ADHD given to these kiddos, when in fact, this kid wasn't able to sit still, not because of ADHD, but because of trauma history, because of something, this, this stored negative energy, as I call it, trapped in their body. Yes. Yeah. Hyper arousal. Yes. Hyper arousal so, and dysregulation. You got yeah. it. Yeah. So that is, that's what you were talking about then. Yes. yes. And, okay. and yes, I had said earlier that we need to see all clients, all patients as trauma patients. And so we're all trauma therapists, all psychotherapists, because life is traumatizing and especially after the pandemic. So, but absolutely, they didn't include children in the PTSD diagnosis when they first had it. In fact, they didn't include them until this last DSM. Now we've just done text revision. I'm talking about the one in 2010. And I, I, rem- I worked at first before I became a psychologist, first an anthropologist and then a psychologist with abused and neglected children out of college. I was a wilderness instructor and I worked in group homes, even a youth prison. And you're absolutely right that there's just such amazing dysregulation. And if we don't understand that they can get PTSD, I mean, PTSD wasn't a diagnosis until 1981, right? Right. So it's not a, we're kind of behind the curve here and we're learning much more about trauma. And that's why it's so fun to have these conversations because we can get more information out there. And I'm hopeful, and I would like to tell a story about what happened to me at a mindfulness meditation retreat. But I'm hopeful that talking about this will help people give themselves a break and be much gentler and slow it all down 
because mindfulness is beautiful and it is accessible. But if you are hyper aroused and super triggered to remember your traumatic experiences, especially from childhood, which you may not even understand you're having, they may just color your entire perception of the world, your worldview, then mindfulness won't feel safe and it won't be a tool. It won't be helpful. Oh, I, I agree so much. And I, I think I've talked about it once before on this. And it, I, I say, I equate it to what you're saying with mindfulness, but I was doing a, a yoga class and it required being very, very still and lying flat on our backs. And I all of a sudden became, and I was just starting my healing path. I had just started doing healing work. I became so overwhelmed, my my system, and, and literally rolled to my side and crawled to the corner of the room. And I mean, wanted to curl in on myself and, and was trying so hard to, you know, keep a panic attack at arm's length away from me. Um, but it was, it was being in that stillness and I hadn't yet learned how to be comfortable in my own body that that soon came with therapy, but that that you're right. I mean, it can be terrifying for someone who's experienced trauma and not yet dealt uh, or been given skills to um, process that trauma. Yes. And the good news is, is that we can recover. I'm not saying that you get to a place where you forget it happened and it's like it never happened. And in fact, trauma can be quite a gift. I did my dissertation on post-traumatic growth and about how even the most extreme and frequent traumas can, in time with awareness and practice, become net positive events because they bring perspective and empathy and a host of wonderful qualities. So it is a very recoverable disorder. You can recover from trauma and you need to do it very kindly, very gently. We need to keep on board another part of mindfulness, which are called the Brahma Viharas, which are loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And I think if we remember that those are important as well as observing non-judgmentally in a particular way, remembering everything's impermanent. If we've got the love foundation, we are much less likely to be re-traumatized. Yes. Oh my gosh. I love it so much. And again, I just so, I just so relate to what you're saying because, well, as someone who's experienced growth, what's the, what's the phrasing for it again? Post-traumatic growth. Post-traumatic growth. Yeah. There are lots of different names. Yeah. And I am able to see the gifts now within, even, even with this physical ailment that I, this journey I'd been on in the past year and a half, two years, because of the healing I did, I didn't, this didn't traumatize me, if that makes sense, because I was able to step back from it and be like, okay, things should happen. Life happens. But what, what lessons can I learn within this? So yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Well, and you make such a good point that adverse experiences, terrible things happening don't have to traumatize us. Just because something bad happens doesn't mean we're traumatized. And just because we're traumatized doesn't mean we get PTSD. Yes. Yeah. So being able to go through life, understanding that things can happen and you can be okay. And if things have already happened, you can figure out how to be okay. And you can, with a guide or on your own, very carefully and gently and lovingly recover. 
Yes. Well, it's that brain plasticity. When I found out about brain plasticity and being able to re-root and, and rewire uh, and create new pathways, uh, wow, that changed everything. And that no one is too old. You can teach old dogs new tricks. Oh, yeah. Plastic for neuro- yeah, exactly. Making new neural pathways. We say that the neurons that wire to get, fire together wire together. And that's yes. just what you're talking about. Yeah, so cool, right? It's yes. So oh, for sure. Recovery. Yeah. So but, talk to and, us about, about this retreat that you had done. Okay. Yes. And so I'm a veteran. I I did all my training when I was doing my psychology doctorate at different VAs. I got really lucky and was honored by working with people who had had pretty severe trauma, combat trauma. But I also learned a lot about military sexual trauma. And I also learned that many people who went into the military did so because they were escaping very troubled childhoods, very abusive childhoods, and then were re-traumatized there, right? So I wanted to be part of the solution and I had hugely expensive graduate school loans. And so at 40, well, 39, I joined the military. I got my commission and became became an officer in the Navy. And five months after that, I was in Lejeune, North Carolina, or Lejeune as they call it, for my pre-deployment training. And then I went to Afghanistan with the Marines. And the Marines don't have their own medical. So they always bring officers from other services. And since we're all under the Department of the Navy, we went along. And in many ways, it didn't seem that bad. So for seven months, we were in Afghanistan with a second supply company. And What's interesting is that I didn't feel traumatized by my deployment. There was a lot of relational drama among officers, more than you want to know about. And the thing about deployment is it brings out who you are. It it brings out who you're made of. And so some people had a really rough time and they picked on each other and they did things that weren't very adult. And that took a lot of my time. I was a psychotherapist. We had a normal outpatient clinic. And we also had a concussion restoration care clinic because we'd understood by then that if you were within 20, I mean, 250 meters of a blast injury, you had to have at least two weeks of rest, right? We don't know exactly how to cure or fix TBI. However, we know that rest doesn't hurt. Yeah, right. Right. So we had Marines that had to come and hang out and they're used to being very active and they deployed in the first place, they enlisted in the first place because they wanted to be part of the solution. They wanted to fight the group that had attacked us, right, on 9-11. So these two wars in Afghanistan and Iraq are completely tied to that, right? right? So I went in 2012 when things were supposed to be waning and we were supposed to be turning over the base to the Afghan National Police and Afghan National Army. So it was supposed to be sort of a hearts and minds thing, if you've heard that term. And I was not allowed outside of the base. I was at Leatherneck, which is a pretty big place. And it's all dirt. Everything is brown. Because you have to be in a place where you're not around civilization because it's more secure, right? Right. So they're conics boxes that are the barriers for everything. And you live in them. It's pretty bizarre. And even the birds, and there's, there's no vegetation, are brown. So I mentioned this because I went to a meditation retreat a few years later after I had left the military. I was only in for five years. I separated. And 
I went to a meditation retreat that was in Southern Washington. That's where I live. And it was very dry and it was dusty and there was a lot of brown dust. Not to mention the fact that you, I was given all these rules. You're supposed to wear um, clothes that are baggy, that don't have any emblems on them. And so I was set up to follow all the rules. Like I was going to serve again. And I think without meaning to, I, I mean, I know without meaning to, I set myself up to be in another experience that was like a deployment, but without any awareness, right? I, I knew that I was suffering because I was burned out at my work. The way that mental health is right now, they really have their people, you know, in, in, in managed care and different clinics, they really have their people work nonstop. And so I was feeling like I wasn't as good of a psychotherapist. And so I wanted to learn how to become a mindfulness teacher, or at least somebody who could teach my patients mindfulness, because it had helped me. So I signed up for this beautiful program with Tara Brock and Jack Kornfield, who are both psychologists and mindfulness teachers. And part of that was to go on a meditation retreat that had to be at least five days and nights. So the free ones are 10, 10 days. And so I got there and I was immediately back in Afghanistan. I didn't know that Afghanistan was a traumatic experience for me. And so I remembered after not, a, not very many hours, a lot of the things that had happened and why I felt numb when I was there. And then I had 10 days of having to sit in that. And I sobbed for most of it. And I, well, I had decided I wasn't gonna quit, I'm not a quitter. Because if I were, I would have quit the Navy, let me tell you. So it, so I, I forced myself into this torturous experience. And I wish that I had read books on trauma senses and my mindfulness. The one that I'm reading right now that is so good, and we were assigned it in our, our is um, Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness by David Trelevin. And so I recommend it. And I'm not, you know, I'm not paid by him or anything, but right, I think right. Right. He does a beautiful job of talking about just this thing. And so, you know, one thing you and I were talking about is how perhaps after this prolonged pan pandemic that's not over yet, that many people on the globe are feeling that same feeling that's that they're traumatized by it, but don't know it. And then things happen to let them know that their resources have been depleted, that they're hyper aroused or hypo aroused where they're sort of, they feel apathetic and like nothing matters and they're kind of nihilistic and cynical. So trauma sensitive mindfulness, make sure that you're aware of that and that you're kind to yourself and that you don't do a full 10 day retreat. Right. Away. Right. Exactly. Well, and I love that idea. I mean, if, if only all, doctors all say psychotherapists everyone could just be now especially like as you said we've we've gone through a global pandemic or still in one in many yeah. ways um and being yes trauma sensitive to to realize that things that are coming up could be possibly be related to this underlying current yes of lack of safety Yes. Lack of safety and security. And, you know, Buddhist psychology, mindfulness will tell you that safety and security are illusions. However, we are very aware now after this that they are illusions. And that's a shock for us, not knowing that there's a safe place to be. 
So mindfulness does teach you to find safety within yourself. But you want to take that very gently and not, you know, go off the deep end with it. And I think having a guide is really nice, having a teacher or a psychotherapist who knows these things. And one other thing I just want to mention for other psychotherapists or for people who are engaging in this on their own is not to to understand that it's very popular. Mindfulness is very, very popular. And to have a, a broader understanding of it before you start to teach it to somebody else or before you use it as a psychotherapist because of just what we've been talking about. Yeah. That it can be very triggering to sit in the discomfort of whatever is here. And that's the point is to increase that window of tolerance, your dysregulation muscle to be able to be more regulated. But the therapist is supposed to be the regulation, right? We hold the regulation for the patient, for the client. Yeah. So, and that, that keeps, it, it keeps coming up lately about connection. And someone had said to me in the last few days about that's why the beauty of therapy is that the therapist becomes a co-regulator and yes, it's in, in when it, that was an aha moment for me, because again, I told you, I'm still uh, doing EMDR therapy and it's incredibly helpful for my continued journey. I've done tremendous healing work, but there's always, again, with COVID coming up, there's that underlying current. So I was like, well, I should probably <laughs> revisit EMDR. <laughs> but, a booster. Yeah. A little booster. Exactly. And so it, but when they said that, I was like, oh, that is so accurate because uh, I certainly feel that co-regulation happen on Tuesday mornings in my EMDR sessions. <laughs> Beautiful. Because so much of it is the relationship, right? When yeah. clients are surveyed, they don't care about the orientation of the therapist or what the technique is. They care about the relationship. Yes, so exactly. We aren't aware that our patients are traumatized. And they can be traumatized by, like we were talking about with the pandemic, or by systemic racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia. We need to be aware of how those things also create hyperarousal or that hypoarousal yeah. where people don't feel safe. So, yes. Well, another something that popped up was um, when you were talking about. Um, Oh, goodness sakes. Hold on. It's coming back to me uh, about um, not feeling or, or you had said uh, the Buddhists, you know, say that there really is the, that it's just an illusion safety. And that, so it's like finding it within ourselves. But yes. for those with trauma history, it's that's a scary place to be inside yourself. <laughs> I know speaking from experience, I, I, I wanted to be, I, that's why I, I dissociated a lot because I didn't want to be inside me. Right. Yes. So, and dissociation has a wisdom to it. It's a way to take care. Even the most maladaptive coping mechanisms are ways to take care of ourselves. And so you were, but you're right. How can you find safety in that when you're leaving? And one of the things we talk about, and I found this in my dissertation work too, is that positive social support makes all the difference in terms of post-traumatic growth. And that's what Trelevin is talking about too. And what I was missing at this meditation retreat that I found in future meditation retreats, I since went through Spirit Rock in California and they're great. You meet with the teacher. If you're upset, they say, do you need extra work? And so you get to talk about things. And I talked about that in my second meditation retreat, which is focused on loving, loving kindness and compassion. And 
without that positive social support or somebody to talk to you about it to say, maybe this actually isn't the right choice for you. Or perhaps what you could do is this instead, because the breath is clearly not calming you because the meditation retreat I went on was all about the breath. Yeah. Right? And 10 hours a day for 10 days. Oh, gosh. I'd, I'd have not done it. I, I, I'd have, I'm not a quitter either, but I'd have been like, ah, I can't do it. <laughs> and well, again, yeah, I, I mean, I've talked about that before on the show is that that was the thing. That was the thing that finally got me to realize that I couldn't be in my body. And that's where I needed to do the healing work was that I was doing breath work with my therapist and she was suggesting, oh, do a four square breath or the rolling breath. And we were trying different. And I was sitting in my car, which always brought up a lot of anxiety with driving. And I was trying so desperately to, to do the breath work. And that's when I came to this realization that this is terrifying because it's making me focus on being in my body. Like as I focus on this breath, right? And so that's yeah. when we started to put all these other coping skills into place and other tools and more healing Then now I can do breath work. Now I find it incredibly soothing, but until I got to that point. Right. Yes. And so that's what you're saying is that, yeah, you couldn't sit there for 10 hours. <laughs> no. So I'm, I sang to myself silently, but, and I sobbed and, you know, the, the other women, I got to talk to them the last day because the way it's set up is that women are on one side of the meditation hall and men are on the other and they have separate dormitories. And you can talk to this little house mother who will then allow you to talk to the, the female leader. But I did talk to her and she just didn't, she wasn't prepared. She didn't have that trauma background. And she yeah. said to me, just keep doing the protocol. It will work. It's so great. But it wasn't for me. And so, yeah, that that just that setup wasn't right for I who didn't know I was traumatized and you who didn't know you were traumatized. Right. So when you're doing breath work and it's you're you're so hyper aroused that it's almost hyperventilation that you're feeling that is not calming. Right. And you can't see it to see what's there. So we do want to focus on, in that case, the tranquilizing parts of Buddhist psychology, the breath, you know, the, the it's not only breath, because there are lots of different anchors you can use for your awareness, right? Like finding heaviness in your body, using gravity, orienting. These are all, Peter Levine talks about a lot of these, the somatic experiencing um, therapist. And but, you know, orienting like deer do where you find safety by looking all over your environment, right? Sound, feeling heaviness in your feet or, you know, feeling neutral parts of your body. But if I didn't know how to do any of that when it happened to me. So breath wasn't safe and it wasn't for you. So, well, we and I say be- kudos to you for going back for a second one, because I think that's awesome that I know me, my MO was if. I had a panic attack on a bridge. I'm not driving over bridges anymore. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and that was, then I started avoidance behavior. So I, I, I applaud you for going back and, and trying another one and finding, finding the right fit for you. Yeah. Well, I know I'm trained, right? I, I trained in the VA and they are really top notch when it comes to PTSD. And they said that PTSD is a disorder of avoidance. And the gold standard treatment when I was in the VA was exposure with response prevention, sitting in the traumatic memories for 45 minutes. And, you know, there are people who don't agree with that. They think it's actually a problem. And so 
there are lots of different ways to help people with this. So I thought I had to knuckle down and just keep going with it. But I, in talking to people who are in my program and who are in the Vipassana, who like Vipassana meditation, that because they're different wings of Buddhism, and that's the one I'm talking about, it's the con contemplative wing. They also don't want to traumatize people and they care about people and they care about trauma and they're really trying to incorporate this information. So I knew if I told somebody that they would care. And in fact, the person I told was Beth Sternlieb, who's amazing. She's out of UCLA. And she immediately, she's like, I know Jack Kornfield. I'm friends with him. I will tell him. And so that was really, really validating. Like my experience was real and she was so kind about it. And then her husband is from Israel and had been in two wars. And he actually worked with Goenka, who was the guy who used to run these meditation retreats that I went to, but he has since died. And she said, he was an amazing meditation teacher. And he said great things to my husband. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. And that was very healing, but see how that was relational. And that's what I needed. Because part of the trauma in Afghanistan was relational trauma, not feeling a cohesiveness with the other officers, which I expected to have, because they say one team, one fight. And the Marines are very good with their esprit de corps, their cohesiveness. It's pretty essential to their survival. But the officers in the Navy, the ones I deployed with, were not. And I, I experienced that as very sad and scary. And it, it, I realized it kind of awoke my little attachment trauma, I shouldn't call it little. See, it's so easy for us to belittle yeah. what we've been through. And veterans do this a lot. And so I think it's also, that's another important thing I want to talk about is that trauma is trauma. Yes. It's not I that, say that all the time. <laughs> COVID trauma is not less important than losing a limb in combat because you stepped on a mine or because you had a horrible sexual assault. It's all experienced by the individual as traumatic and you need to be able to heal from it. So if you're judging it and telling yourself, get over it, suck it up. That is just reifying the idea that you're weak. You don't deserve to heal, that somehow you did this and you deserve this. So. Yes. Thank you so much for saying it. I, mean, yeah. I think the audience is sick of hearing me say it. <laughs> so I love it that you said it because it's so true. It's not a trauma race. What's traumatic to one person is not going to be traumatic to, to another. You know, it, it, there's, there's your childhood, there's your personality, there's epigenetics, there, whatever, there's so many things that come into play. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and I, I, I think what happened to me and not accepting that I'd been traumatized because I thought I was inoculated by my training, but I didn't pay attention to post-traumatic stress disorder and how that everybody I'd worked with had already had the trauma. It was done. And if the stressor is still rem is not unremitted, if it's, rem you know, it's continuing, you can't have post-traumatic stress disorder. You're in it. Right? So I actually had no idea how to help my Marines and soldiers, because we were turning over to the American army as well, when they would come to me and say things like, everybody around me is really poorly trained, including the people who are supervising me. I'm afraid I'm gonna get killed today when I go outside the wire. What would you say? I don't, I'm not trained in that. Actually, what I did say was stay present, get in your body. That's the safest Be thing they could have done. Yes, get in that good athletic stance. Be be present for whatever comes and then you'll be able to handle things. Yeah. But being hyper original, trying to see a 360 view is not safe. 
which is ironic because that's a big part of what happens during a trauma response, right? Right. right. Yes. Oh, that's so, uh, I, in my non-military experience, that's great advice <laughs> because it makes you very aware of, right, being here in the now, in this moment. This yeah. moment. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, back to what we were saying, I don't like the idea of big T and little T traumas. You know, Mark Epstein says, if we're not having post-traumatic stress disorder, we're having pre-traumatic stress disorder because of what's to come. And in Buddhist psychology, we say anxiety comes from not being able to handle uncertainty. Who handles uncertainty well, especially after this pandemic that continues, that is now endemic? It's all uncertainty all the way down, right? Right. So mindfulness can help us tolerate that, but not if we throw ourselves in without kind, gentle understanding of what it is. Yes. And give ourselves lots of credit and lots of validation and for I, doing I'm, it at all. I'm feeling moved to bring something up and maybe we can talk about it and maybe you'll agree with me, maybe you won't, but I'm going to bring it up because I'm feeling moved to do so. So Excellent. I had just uh, was chatting with a friend before coming on to join you for this wonderful conversation. And I was talking about um, what one of my mindfulness practices. And so with this healing journey that I've been on, uh, I had this horrific rash come over my whole body as part of mycotoxin poisoning. It's improved greatly. But what I started doing was was like hugging my leg and talking to my immune system and telling and being very kind to my body physically. But so we were anyway, we we're having this conversation back and forth about how and I would say, and you know, yeah, I'll be that crazy lady who's, you know, like singing to the lizard outside and talking to the tree as I put my hand on it and giving my leg a hug and telling my immune system how proud I am of it. Right. And so that to me is mindfulness. I'm being very present in the moment with whatever is 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 going on whether it's watering my plants and seeing the lizard and singing it a song right um so i my whole point of bringing it up is is so when we talk about mindfulness one is is that what you're talking about and two are are we needing to teach people don't worry about what what society said is supposed to be normal and not normal. You do you, you be present in the moment with it. If that's singing a song to a lizard, then sing away. <laughs> I think we need to make t-shirts and bumper stickers. About <laughs> I can, I can feel it. It's going to be a movement. My family, yeah. they just crack up because they'll be like, Oh my gosh, she sees us. She sees an animal. Cause I'm doing my little hello. Hello. And I do my little hello song to my little creatures that I run into. <laughs> beautiful actually it's a it's a, a great example of mindfulness so I think it it would be useful to talk about the different kinds so there's yeah. formal and informal okay. and informal mindfulness is more what you're talking about where you you wake back up from that trance that sleepwalking trance that modern society has us in if we're not careful and you have this moment of oh I'm here right now and there's a lizard and I can sing and then you're completely ensconced in that moment, right? And it may not last very long because nothing does because everything's impermanent. That's part of the awareness of mindfulness. Present-centered awareness practice is another term that is synonymous with mindfulness. And I think that really explains it. Then there's formal mindfulness, which is meditation. And meditation in the Vipassana tradition can be done standing up, walking, lying down, or sitting. 
right? Zen, they usually sit and they have a very right. specific way of sitting. But part of what I love about the insight tradition is that you have a lot more leeway. And so I love walking meditation because it allows me when I'm really hyper aroused and I can tell I need to get some adrenaline and cortisol out, I can go for a walk, but I can be in each step. And so you use as an anchor, the body, the foot, and typically it's lift, place, step, right? And so you can, a lot of people do it slowly so they can really concentrate. Yeah. But so you're in your body because that's your anchor for your awareness. What you described of singing to an animal is you were in your body and you were in the experience. So in a way it was a mini meditation. And I love the idea of mini meditations and making anything into one, brushing our teeth, making dinner, sitting with our family, just be, being hyper present for the experience and not missing anything. Yes. Oh, I think in the book, The Miracle of Mindfulness, I had read about like when you're doing the dishes to be with the bubbles and with the brush and with the dishes and be yes. with it all. And feel like feel into it. You know, how are your what's the inside of your hand feeling like as the bubbles are on the outside? And what how does it feel to percolate up to that and feel the interaction between the two? Yes, that's what's cool is that mindfulness can be very internal in the body, or it can be external with sounds, sights, smells, or it can be the intersection between the two. It's all mindfulness. And it's about paying attention. And I think that kindness, that love is crucial because if we pay attention in a loving way, we're more likely to sit with it and not have to avoid, right? Because mostly what humans do is they're trying to get away from discomfort and move toward comfort. And it causes a lot of problems, right? It's like we're chasing yes. our tails around life. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I, and I, I mean, I did it for 25 years with to, in, in trying to avoid panic attacks because I had no idea what trauma I had stored away in my body. I mean, I knew these bad things had happened to me, but just didn't understand the impact of it. Um, yeah. And so again, if I was doing something and I started to feel panicky, I was like, okay, check that off the list. Never doing that again. <laughs> And it avoid became it. so, yes. Oh, avoidance big time. That was my go-to. Avoid it. Um, and then it, it did. It really created a lot of problems. Yeah. And each thing you're avoiding gets so much bigger. It's like if you're afraid of a, a microscopic spider, it becomes as big as Shelob in Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah. And it's not that it's actually that big, but your mind believes it to be because of the avoidance. And so the counterintuitive reality is that which we resist persists, right? Yes. And oh, we can yeah. learn to avoid gently, carefully, sweetly with a guide that we trust and feel safe with, then we can start to approach. And that can take years and that's yeah. fun. We don't need to rush. Oh, I so agree. I'm taking a somatic course right now. It's a six week course and we meet three days a week, which is a lot. I'm, I'm three days behind. I have to like, just take this weekend and catch up on, on my videos. But I love what you just said about you, it, just one, take our time, but two, make it fun. So I am starting to explore and expand and be with, and, and someone told me, you know, just stay, stay. I felt like a dog, like talking to myself, yeah. stay, be with it. Just be with yeah. it. Just first see how long you can do it. If you need to walk away, walk away. But, yeah. oh, it's so it, it is fun. 
Yeah. You can have fun with it. It doesn't have to be taken so seriously. That's another thing that's part of mindfulness is lightening up and trying to notice attachment because attachment and freedom are antithetical. You can't be attached and free. And it, it's through freedom that we can have joy and love freely. So exactly what you're talking about is this, like you loosened your grip on the sitting there and you had a little fun with it. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. And well, I love I, my other funny thing was, is that I, I have this fear of open spaces and it, it relates back to some very, very traumatic bank robberies where I was trapped between gunmen. And, but regardless, oh, I said, okay, I'm going to go start challenging myself to be out in these open spaces and just take myself just a little bit too much to the edge of my comfort zone. Right. And then maybe take one step into the uncomfortable and just, just see. And so, so then I decided, oh, this pier, we live on an island and there's this big long pier and I was always afraid to walk on it. I just wouldn't walk on it. And so I said, I'm going to walk on it, but I'm going to skip on it. <laughs> so instead of walking, I'm going to skip like I'm four years old and just be silly and have fun with it. And I skipped across the whole thing and made it to the other side because it was joy filled and it was fun. <laughs> and so now I can walk on it. There you go. That's super awesome. <laughs> well, and you know, another way of looking at what you did was you enlisted your four-year-old self, your happy four-year-old self, pre-bank robberies, to come and skip along with you like you were holding her hand. And she restored your joy for that amount of time, right? And you reintegrated a part of you that could be a guide who wasn't traumatized by what had happened to you as an adult. Right. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I love that image. Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks. And Buddhist psychology talks about multiple selves, these sort of sub-personalities. They also talk about it in internal family systems, parts work. Yeah. And and I've since been thinking about it as though you, we become a, because a lot of those selves are very immature because they came through trauma in childhood, especially attachment trauma and neglect and abuse and all that stuff that kids don't even know is wrong, right? So it's not until later that we go, wait a minute, that was really right. bad. And it makes sense that I'm not doing well and that I can't have relationships and I don't trust people. So I like the idea of being able to identify them. And I didn't make this up, but I, I'm just adding a little piece to it and seeing that they're so well-meaning, but they're very immature because they're little girls, they're little boys, right? They're little kids. And going to them as the parent that maybe those little girls, those little kids didn't have and being able to be loving and nurturing, and even imagine hugging and holding them, yeah. and then listening to their message. And you don't do what they say because they're misguided and immature, and they're so hyper-protective that it's not necessarily a good idea to follow their message, but they're like little children. And if you ignore them, they get louder and more insistent. And so we can become a parent to our ourselves that got cut off from trauma and reintegrate them by parenting them the way we wanted to be parented. That's such a beautiful image. I had little Terry, little five-year-old Terry sitting on my lap yesterday. How funny outside having a little conversation with her, just hugging her and telling her, you know what? I've got this. I've, I've got it now. I I'm so much better armed and, and I know so much more, but I thank you so much for what you did. You were so strong. You were so tough. I, like you, you made it kid. <laughs> so I gave her a little pep talk and gave her a hug and, but yeah. Yeah, I love it. You know, you already know about this. You're doing exactly what I'm talking about. And it sounds like it's really helping you. 
Yes. Oh, for really sure. Were. For sure. Yeah. Oh, so beautiful, Carrie. Oh, That's thanks. Beautiful. Thanks. Well, I could sit and talk to you for ever and ever. So <laughs> I love your energy and I love it that you keep saying stuff that I'm like, oh my gosh, I love it. Yes. Oh my gosh, I love that. Yes. <laughs> it makes sense, doesn't it? Right. I mean, it's if we can do this from a loving place and then we can take this these ancient universal principles and just apply them gently, there's this whole world that can open up for us of healing. Yeah. Amen. But yeah. it needs to be gentle and it needs to be careful. And we need to do it very well informed. So as therapists or lay people, when we help each other or ourselves. Yeah. That's that's my opinion. And I love it and agree. And okay. I, I, I look forward to a trauma-informed world, truly. Yes, I think we're starting that. Maybe we're only in kindergarten, but at right. least we're in school. <laughs> we're yeah, at least we're learning. Yeah, exactly. So anything else that you wanted to uh, talk about or before we close out? I think I'm good. I really appreciate that you talk about my experience coming away from Afghanistan and reintegrating into civilian life, which is a trip. You know, you don't realize unless you've been in a war zone, how much it permeates. And how hard it is to come away from that and feel safe at all, partly because they work very hard to keep you on edge so that you won't become complacent. So if something happens, you can protect yourself. Yeah. But you bring that home with you. And civilian life doesn't feel real. So I think that's also what I had to deal with at that meditation retreat is becoming real again. And that dissociative feeling of not being able to be in the body because is the body even real, right? So yeah. it, it's it's deep stuff, and and we I'm sure could have several more conversations about oh, it. But I for sure, yeah. I've never talked about it publicly. I've talked about it to individual friends, but to be able to do it in a recorded way is it it's a little bit scary. So I I, I want to thank you for how kind you've been and how easy it was to talk about. Oh, and thank you for trusting me and, and the audience with your truth. I, I, I feel honored. So thank you. Well, and the hope is that other veterans will hear it or other people who've been through traumas they don't know are traumatic and they'll give themselves a little room, a little break. Yeah. And, and I want to add one little, one little PS because again, I'm feeling moved. One of my dear, dear, beautiful friends, Joe, uh, was in, um, Oh my gosh, what was the the very first war over there? And now I'm so drawing a blank. Gulf War? Are you talking about the Gulf Operation War? Death? Yes, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Uh, the Gulf War. And he um, came back. And so we befriended each other. We both, we lived across the street from each other and we had little kids and we just became very good friends. But Joe was this big, you know, six foot four, big, tough guy, muscles, you know, just raw. Everybody was just like, oh, Joe, you know, he's, he's so strong. And, but he knew of my trauma history. And so I became his confidant. And so he, he started to finally realize his traumas and having panic attacks and waking up with flashbacks to, you know, the sound of bullets hitting sand and, and being on the ground in his bedroom and in, in a corner. And I just remember having these profound conversations with him. And I, I, it helped me along my healing journey because I remember stepping back and thinking, 
but he's so big and strong. Like, like he's, he's struggling with the same thing. Like he's struggling as well. And it, it really helped me realize the impact of trauma on it. it we're just humans, uh, all of us. And nobody's, we're not different when it comes to this. There's no amount of strength or size that can inoculate you, protect you from being traumatized if it just gets in there, right? Because like we said, not everyone who has trauma gets PTSD. But I do think the military system that tells people to suck it up and encourages them to judge each other for not being tough works against healing around this. And the military is trying really hard to have awareness of this. They're going to be very slow, right? Because it, they need to have tough people. But when the toughness breaks down, what do you do with these folks and how do you help them recover? And right. that was the first real entrance I had into this population. And so I feel very grateful because I got to work with somebody when I was a civilian and didn't really know what I was doing to help him heal. And I think that that helped because I didn't judge him for being not tough in a way he was judging himself. And it sounds like you did the same thing for Joe. Yes. Yeah. For yeah, sure. but uh, I know that we have to wrap up. But one thing I realized when I was at this meditation retreat, the thing I think it all hinged on is that I was traveling to what they call a dignified transfer. And that happened right away when we got there that they had several Marines and soldiers who had died. And so a dignified transfer is when they bring them to the fight, the coffin to the flight line. And they need a certain amount of people to be there to do a very slow salute. And we were on our way there and I was with some corpsmen who are the medics of the Navy and they were messing around. And we had a female gunny sergeant and they're like the toughest Marine enlisted people. And she's a woman. So, you know, it's really, she was really tough. And she said, what are you doing? that is so disrespectful. Look at Lieutenant McKee. Look how she's behaving. Act like she does. And from then on, I felt nothing, nothing about combat at all. It's like I, I flipped to switch to impress her. And it was, you know, as a cultural anthropologist, I also understand that that's my culture. The Northern European colonized culture is stoic, Yes. You don't talk about things, right? And so it played into my own enculturation. And mindfulness likes to pay attention to our, our socially conditioned way of being. That's another great thing about it is you get to analyze that. And it no longer works on you in the same way. Right. Oh, gosh. So this is crazy how you just keep coming up about all the stuff I've talked about in the past two days. I just was talking about colonization and, and the fact that if I'm going to skip, I'm going to skip. Like, that's just the way it is now. Where in the past, I wouldn't have been because it didn't fit within this normal, acceptable, how I'm supposed to be behavior. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Women's temperance union. They're still there telling us how to behave. And yeah. So another conversation. For right. Exactly. Day. Yeah. Another podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> how do folks, how do folks connect with you? How do they touch base with you? I have a website. You can look for me on psychologytoday.com. Psychology Today online. And I have a you can get to my website that way. And actually I have just applied to be part of SciPact, which allows you to do virtual therapy in other states. I'm in Washington state, but my hope is to be able to see people on the East coast, like where you are. Yeah. And maybe I can reach veterans and civilians that way. 
Wonderful. Yes. So look me up on Google, Erin McKee, PsyD, which is P-S-Y-D, and you should be able to find my website and contact me or call me that way. Yeah. All right. Yay. Well, it's just been such a joy. It's wonderful to have you. I've learned a lot and agreed with everything. So (laughs) So easy. I know. It's been great. You you are so well. Thanks. Thanks. It resonates for you because you've really paid attention so that you can heal. And that's such a beautiful thing. What a great example. Oh, thank you so much. Yes. I, well, again, I, I, I love what I do uh, with this show because I mean, amazing healers like you come on and I, I just, one, it helps me along my own healing journey, but to be able to put it out there to others, I I just hope everyone gets as much out of it as I do. Cause I know I certainly, I certainly learn a lot. Yeah. All right. Well, everyone, I'm sorry. Your enthusiasm helps. It's infectious. Oh, thanks. I know I get so, woo, my arms are flying around and (laughs) I love it. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, everyone, thanks for joining us today on the Healing Place podcast. And remember until next time, be gentle with yourself. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hey everybody, Terry Welbrock again. Just wanted to thank you for listening to the episode today. And remind you to visit my website as well as the academy.terrywellbrock.com for the courses. But if you go to my website, terrywellbrock.com, you can sign up for my monthly Hope for Healing newsletter, which is also jam-packed with information and strategies and blog pieces and guest blog pieces and links to shows um, and just a great space for, uh, again, healing. Thanks for, again, being here and being a part of this healing space. I very much appreciate you. All right. Bye-bye.